Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Put us up here. Okay, we're up and recording. Mike, uh, welcome to the Human Performance Outliers. It is a rare, rare occasion we have someone that runs farther than Zach does on our show. So welcome for coming on. Can you give us a quick little rundown on who you are and your background and your story real quick and let us know that we can get into the, get into the questions that invariably are going to come up? Yeah, of course. So um, my name is Michael McKnight. I'm an ultra marathoner. Not as fast as Zach, but I do try to run at least as far as he does sometimes. Um, <clears throat> I've been running for about eight years now got into it from a I actually got in a skiing accident up here in northern Utah and broke my back a bit in the 200 mile distance cool yeah Mike um I think uh I think I might have accidentally paused the recording there for a second instead of muting my microphone <laughs> <laughs> I think we got most of that though you were uh you uh, you said that you got into running after and it's actually a topic I think we want to jump into a little bit here so it's not necessarily something that we're going to we need to record or re-record or anything like that. But you had mentioned that you had gotten into running after a ski accident where you broke your back essentially, which I think a lot of times people think about breaking your back being kind of a more or less like, okay, now I'm going to be dealing with this for the rest of my life, maybe in a, in, a, in a way that limits what you can actually do from an athletic standpoint. So then when we kind of fast forward to today and, and, and highlight like your 200 plus mile races it seems like a long journey <laughs> if anything um can you tell us just a little bit about that after that accident like kind of what was your thoughts what was kind of the doctor's message to you like what was that whole experience like what was the rehab like and when did you feel if you ever did feel like you kind of had you know your full use of your backpack so yeah um so take a little back step. I started running probably five months before I broke my back. And um, I was trying to figure out a way to save money on college. I wanted to see if I could maybe run fast enough to walk onto the track team at the college I was attending. So there's one day I just went out and busted a mile um, and I was able to do a 452 mile. And so I thought that if I was able to start training a little bit consistently, I'd be able to maybe walk onto the track team. So I started training for about five months and then broke my back. Um, I shattered my L1 vertebrae and had surgery the next day, had two rods and nine screws placed into my back. I had part of my hip bone fused to my spine. Um, and so it was <clears throat> just right after surgery, I asked my doctor when I could start running again since I was starting to appreciate it. And he told me that I'd be in bed for, for months, that I wouldn't be able to run for about a year. Um, I'd maybe be able to start doing some swimming and biking about eight months after surgery. But in terms of the, the impact exercising, he said to wait for about a year. And so, um, you know, I could talk about this forever, but long story short, it was about three and a half weeks after surgery, I decided to go out and try and go for a run to see how it felt. And, and it didn't feel terrible. So, um, my recovery was super quick. Three and a half weeks after I started running and it was about eight months after surgery, I started doing the ultra distances. Wow. Yeah. So that's, it, you know, it's interesting to me with, to kind of sidestep a little bit from, from your personal journey into just kind of the world of ultra marathoning. I think one of the most unique aspects of that community is just like how people ended up into it. Cause you would think with most things, like if we said, extreme football or extreme basketball or extreme baseball or something like that. It'd be like, Oh, clearly that person played little league baseball and then they played in high school and then they played in college and then they played major league baseball and then they ended up in extreme baseball or something like that. But, and, and there are people like that in the sport, you know, that have a, 
a running background from essentially when they started sport at a young age and, and did that whole circuit. But then there's folks who kind of just come into the sport that uh, never really ran before. You hear stories of that where, you know, they decided for whatever reason at, uh, you know, an adult age, like I'm going to go try this trail race. Or I'm going to do this and they end up running tons of ultra marathons without necessarily, you know, jumping into like a 5k or 10k circuit or something like that. And, and I mean, you're probably a little more in between those and you're not that, not, not that big of an extreme. I mean, busting out a 452 mile just to kind of see is, is pretty, pretty impressive just to like, to, to see what you can do. Um, yeah. So I think it's, it's just kind of an interesting like side note more or less about kind of just the diverse background of folks who end up running ultra marathons. And then when you get into the sport itself, you have something that I want to talk to you about as well is just the different kind of uh, arenas within it. You know, you can have like, you know, our listeners are familiar with, with my hundred mile world record and 12 hour world record, which is on indoor track, which is kind of a strange place to run an ultra marathon to most people. But if you don't know anything about it, you might think they all are on something like that. And then they got, uh, you know, stuff like what you've been doing more this year and a lot of listeners know, you know, one of Mike's biggest achievements this year, in my opinion, was they have this, uh, this series of 200 plus mile races. They call it the, the triple crown of two hundreds. And, I think it's from like 205 miles up to 238, if I'm not mistaken. It's a relatively kind of new, uh, new angle to the sport uh, from in North America anyway. Got, it's got a lot of momentum though in the last few years. And, and Mike not only did all three of them, and it's not spread out either. It's not like one's in January, one's in July, and one is in like November or something like that. It's, they're in, how, how close are they? Are They're all like within... It's, they're a month apart, so August, September, October. Okay, yeah. So imagine like doing a 200-mile race and then recovering physically and mentally from that, you know, a few weeks later, getting up to do another one and then doing that a third time. And not only just doing it, but Mike, you won all three of them and you broke, did you break a course record on two of them as well? Um, I broke actually a record on all three of them. Um, I broke the overall course record at Bigfoot 200. I broke the counterclockwise course record at Tahoe and then the mill course record at Moab. Okay. And then, and then you also had the overall. So yeah, the, the goofy thing is I, I guess there's enough people that do all three of them that they have a category for the fastest cumulative time of all three. What was the, what was your cumulative time for all three? Oh gosh, it was just over 160 hours. I think it was 162. <laughs> <laughs> so our listeners are probably thinking right now, well, 160 hours of running sounds like a solid year worth of running. And, <laughs> and here you did it in, in three events. I guess this is good of any time to jump into some of that because I'm, you know, I'm curious about this because I'm an ultra marathon runner, but I've never run that far or that long. So I can appreciate from just knowing what it's like to go from like a 50 mile or up to a hundred that there's, there's variances in that. And just cause you're good at, you know, a 50 mile, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be really good at a hundred miler. So I would imagine there's some, something like that as well, where like, you know, you can get like really good at running a hundred miles. Maybe you're not quite as good. You're not necessarily going to be a slam dunk for, uh, being great at running 200 miles because there's a few more variables in there. Can you kind of talk to us? Like what are, what are things that are kind of going through your mind as you're approaching this event and you're trying to mentally prepare yourself for it? Yeah. So, I mean, the biggest thing with the 200 mile races is the, the fact that you're doing this over a period of a couple of days. Um, you know, I, if we were to put me on an indoor track like you and we were to go head to head out, get destroyed just because I don't have that kind of speed. <laughs> um, but the 200 mile distance, there's a lot more strategy involved to it. Um, <clears throat> you, you kind of want to hold back a little bit just because, you know, the, the fast, like, you know, the course record I set at Bigfoot was for 50 hours. So just over two days of running. Um, so if you're going to start out going at, you know, some kind of, hundred mile world record pace, you're going to blow up pretty quick and not sustain that for the next 24 hours. So there's definitely a lot more strategy with um, your pace that's involved. Um, <clears throat> there's some sleep stations at these races that are kind of funny to think about that there's actually cots and tents and heaters that and sleeping bags, even that you can stop and take naps. Um, I personally didn't take naps just because I'm a bad sleeper. <laughs> so 
so I couldn't um, factor that in. But but yeah, so I, I mean, the difference between these distances really is just that you're out there for so long that you have to strategize um, your pace and your sleep and and you can even lose it mentally sometimes, which is kind of weird to talk about. There's people that have hallucinations at these races. <laughs> so it, it's a whole new level of light deprivation that you're putting your body through. It is interesting too, because I think when you think of the sleeping aspect of it, like it's semi a reality, but maybe not. Like how, how much did you sleep total during, during those on average? So I, I didn't sleep more than 20 minutes. Um, total for each race so i slept for about an hour total between the three races so that's basically nothing i'm gonna chalk it up as nothing if it's under an hour over the course of three 200 plus mile races we can round down yeah yeah i was talking to some some six-day folks so like you know there's another aspect of this sport where uh, i guess it's kind of a similar realm as to what you're doing although the six-day events are tend to be on flat or short loop circuits whereas yours are through like you know legit mountain passes sleeping can be one of those things where like you might want to really badly, but you can't necessarily do it when you want to. Cause you're just, you're, you're aware. I'm sure there's like a whole bunch of like cortisol and all, all the things kind of keeping you awake and you may lay down and just lay there. And then you're sitting there thinking, well, I could be moving forward, but instead I'm laying here not getting anything done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, the cra- oh, go ahead. I was going to say, so the crazy thing with that, like, you know, at the Tahoe 200, I tried to sleep so many times and I couldn't. And so going into that second night, there's actually about a five, six hour period where I was having some heavy hallucinations, Mm -hmm. um, where I was talking to people that weren't near me. Like, you know, I, I was talking to my legs and they were talking back to me. (laughs) I was stuck in this like little time portal where I couldn't progress. I was running in circles and like, I essentially was in a different dimension and you know, thinking about it now, I don't know how that's possible, but in the moment I was just lost and completely out of it from lack of sleep. It, it seems like it's a whole nother sport almost. Cause like the, you know, finishing within a day is you don't, I guess, get quite to that point where you're, you're battling like the sleep deprivation side of things as much. I mean, you're going to get tired obviously, but not to the point I don't, th- at least not, I haven't seen, mm-hmm. seen like, you know, things that aren't there or, hallucinated in some kind of weird way or thing like that, or had an experience where I can look back on it and think like really that I was out in another dimension almost. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So let's talk a bit about just like the preparation for something like that, because when I'm coaching folks, one thing we do is we kind of look at the race and we kind of work backwards and we highlight that ultimately kind of specificity and consistency are kind of these two guiding compasses of their training. And when you're building a training plan for someone running a long race like that, specific means long and slow, which I like to put kind of near the event itself. And then maybe if I'm going to have them do something shorter and faster, like interval-based stuff, I'll be doing that earlier in the training plan since I think it's an important component to your aerobic fitness, but it's not necessarily specific to the race intensity itself. So when you're building like a plan, I guess, uh, I guess I could ask, do you build a plan? <laughs> and if you do, do you have a strategy as to like, what are you going to do in kind of the months leading up to one of these? Yeah. So it's very similar to what you just, you know, described with your clients where earlier on in the year, I, I do a lot more speed oriented type work. Um, and as the race got closer, a lot more, you know, you could say hiking type work and mix that up together. Um, you know, there's two factors for these 200s that you really got to factor in, and that's the sleep deprivation, and then that's the the fact that you're going to be going a little bit slower, which is okay. And so I would do specific trainings leading up to it where, you know, I'd go on a run with some steep incline that is technically runnable, but I would purposely hike it and work on my power hiking and my speed hiking because, um, you know, it you could be in the middle of this race and you could get to a hill with somebody and they could run it and you could hike it and you could get to the top about 10 minutes slower than they did. But you know, in 12 hours, their legs are going to be that much more shot than you are because they chose to run and you chose to power hike, you know, so in my training, I did a lot of power hiking. And then I also did a lot of back to back long runs with a little bit of sleep in between. So I'd go on like an evening run for 
30 miles and then sleep for about four or five hours and then wake up and go for another four or five hour run just to get used to the long distance running, the sleeping, the long distance running and repeating. So, so it's definitely some speed work, like you were saying, but that's earlier on and then focusing on the power hike as it gets closer. Cool. Yeah. You know, the closest event I think that we have in the sport to maybe draw some comparisons to would be the grand slam of hundred milers where that's been one that's been around for a while where you run four kind of historic hundred milers over the course of essentially the summer. So you kind of get yourself in this position where you can do like a really big buildup before that first one. But then after that, you're kind of just recovering from it and then getting yourself ready more or less from a recovery standpoint for the next one. You just kind of keep doing that over and you just hope you have enough fitness to kind of carry you through the, through the series, so to speak. Is that kind of what it's like with, with after that first 200 plus mile effort? Are you just basically trying to recover, getting your legs moving a little bit, and then just trying to show up to that next one fresh and leaning on a big buildup that you did leading into that first one? Essentially, yeah. Um, so I've actually done this two times now. The, the Triple Crown started in 2017 and I did it that year and then I did it here in 2019 as well. And the difference between the two years is astronomical in my opinion because you know, the first year I didn't run once in between those races. Like my legs were swollen, I, I felt completely beat up, I was worried about the next race and so I just I didn't run because I didn't feel like I could. Whereas this year, I guess last year 2019, um, I took about six days off and then I started running every day leading up to it and I felt great and I felt fresh. So, um, I definitely wasn't doing like high training blocks and going for 30 mile runs in between those races, but, but you know, I would say I was putting in about 60 to 70% effort between the races. Interesting. So you, uh, you, you, you either grew from the first experience or figured something, <laughs> something out a little bit uh -huh. there. I think another another component that uh, I know Sean will be interested in too uh, that you do with this stuff is you pay fairly close attention or at least you have a unique enough nutritional approach that it would stand out, I would say, maybe not so much now as it would have a decade ago, but talk to us a bit about your trajectory in the sport with kind of nutrition and, and how you kind of use that as a tool in your training. So, yeah, I, you know, I, I'm a very heavy meat eater. Um, and as the, as the months go on, I find myself eating more and more meat and less and less of everything else. Um, and I, I think that that was a really big difference between the 2017 and 2019 uh, experiences. In 2017, I just started working on keto and when the races happened, I used that as an excuse to just binge eat whatever, whatever I freaking wanted in between the races. And so, you know, when I was supposed to be recovering and taking care of my body, I was eating junk food like fried chicken, fried, fried cheese curds, and just a whole bunch of breaded crap. And, you know, that, that definitely was not good for the recovery process, which affected it. But, you know, going into this year, I made it a goal to be very, very strict with my high fat and low carb intake. And it was about in between the first 200s that I actually um, started following Sean on Instagram and learning about this carnivore diet thing. <laughs> and so it was about, it was leading into the second 200 and going into the third 200 that I started strategically trying carnivore um, on certain days of the week and certain meals and experimenting with heavy meat intake and and I mean I, I, I've been feeling great ever since doing it so so I, I'm kind of borderline keto low carb high fat carnivore I'm just a mix between all of it yeah Mike that's interesting and I think Zach has a similar thing and he's finding that and I think more and more athletes are, are finding the value in you know, high quality nutrition, you know, that we get in meat, it's very bio, bio available. It's, you know, it's what we need for recovery. I know Zach strategically uses it, particularly around recovery. If I'm not mistaken, Zach, I know you mm -hmm. go kind of carnivore after these big races because it helps you recover well. And it just makes sense because when we look at what we're doing to our muscles on these long races, I mean, we're really doing a lot of, you know, beating up even more so than weightlifting. You know, we've had guys like, I think, who do we have on there? Like, uh, 
Lehman or Phillips, or one of these guys talking about that, Jose Antonio, I think, talking about how much protein requirements go up in, in endurance athletes. And, you know, there's no better source of protein and fat than, 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 than we get in animal fats and often red meat being a very, very good strategy. So that's encouraging to hear. Are you, um, are you, so you did those races, I guess you're, you're in the off season right now. Um, what are your thoughts and straight plans for dietary uh, strategies going forward? Are you going to do more of these races? Yeah. Um, you know, it is the off season, so I am doing a lot, a lot of meat right now, but, um, my first race probably won't be until June. And so, um, you know, where I live right now, it's like a blizzard outside right now. So <laughs> there's not a lot of opportunities for races for me right now. Um, and I, and I have a young family, so traveling's out of the question a lot of the time, but, but you know, the 200 mile distance is definitely my niche niche. So I'm going to, I'm going to keep looking for those distances and keep doing it. And, I'm very intrigued about these six day events that Zach was mentioning earlier. And, and I, I'm really going to focus on um, following a little bit more carnivore this year as well, just to, to experiment and see what that can do with those kind of events. Because, because I do feel that the more meat that I eat, the better I am doing, which is it, when I first heard about your carnivore diet, I, I thought it sounded so ridiculous, <laughs> just to be honest. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't see how I'd possibly be able to eat meat every day for the rest of my life, but it's, it, it's got some value to it. And, um, you know, I, I think it's important to, to look at nutrition on these kind of things. Yeah, it's, it's, it's increasingly interesting. And we had Pete Jacobs, who's an Ironman, a former Kona Ironman world champ. He's, he's playing with that right now noticing again, improvements in recovery, particularly, and he had a lot of gut issues and I think that's helping with him. I've got, you know, a, a, several Olympic athletes right now that are doing it that I'm aware of. And they're, you know, and I actually did a consultation with one of the Olympic coaches and he's got several of his athletes doing it and saying they're, they're actually performing extremely well. So, um, you know, we'll see what, what shakes out. I think that, you know, there'll be some degree of eat a bunch of meat plus or minus, you know, some other food potentially, maybe, maybe not. And I think there'll be a, 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 maybe, a, maybe a paradigm shift coming up that we, instead of focusing on a balanced, balanced diet of a bunch of varied things, we're, we're focusing on meat. And then we, we kind of have a fueling strategy for, for those events that need it. I don't know. Zach, do you want to comment any more on that? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting. Like just, I think it's really interesting when you get into some of these sports where there's a huge variance in what you do from day to day. And I think you, Mike, yours very much highlights that because like I talk about this a lot on podcasts. I go on on this podcast from time to time about just, you know, what my year can look like in terms of recovery versus peak training and how it's basically two very different kind of polarizing um, ener energetic needs, I guess, and then recovery needs as well. So for you, it's almost like you took that to a whole nother extreme where you finish an event and, you know, not only are you trying to recover physically and probably catch up on, on fuel, cause there's just no way you're eating eating what you're burning out there on a 200 mile race. I wouldn't imagine anyway that like, you know, you're, you're in a different, a different, different realm. So I think like finding the balance between what you need to do, like intra-performance and also what you need to do when you're recovering from those. And then also what you need to do when you're building up for something like that, they can be a little bit unique, but, but ultimately, yeah, I think like when we look at just, just what are we trying to do for a specific, specific task, if that's muscle recovery, it doesn't seem very optimized to me to be focusing on things that aren't like the best sources of that. So uh, when we're looking at the best sources of, of food for protein and we're looking at, you know, things like eggs, dairy, meat. So, you know, I like to kind of use those as that foundational point of my, my recovery and um, of that stuff too. And, you know, I've always been high fat, low carb for the last eight years or so. So, you know, fatty cuts of meat make a lot of sense in that, in that regard. And I'd be interested about your kind of approach so far, Mike, when it comes to kind of how you're structuring your diet, uh, it doesn't even have necessarily be like most recently where, cause I think you're doing world carnivore month, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Uh, are you doing anything unique? Like I'm having certain types of meats for certain things, or you just kind of just say, I need to eat a lot. So I'm going to eat as much meat as I can get and then go from there. 
It's more the latter for sure. Um, <clears throat> I do try to get the clean stuff, the grass fed and, and, you know, not just the, the stuff that you can pick up at your local Walmart or something like that. But um, mm. I do try to make the quality good and I do try to focus on the, the red meat, um, red meats and salmons. I, I hardly ever do chickens or anything like that, but, but there's no strategy in the day to day, just, you know, whatever I have in the freezer and it's usually red meat or salmon. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mike, how much, how much are you eating? I mean, just from a day and how much do you weigh just out of curiosity? Cause I know Zach's putting away, he says about two pounds of red meat a day. And Zach, I, I don't remember. You're not like 250 pounds or anything like that. No, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm 175. And um, I think just from following you guys that this is normal for people who start to get into it, but I'm probably doing a pound and a half to two pounds as well, just because like I'm, I'm almost forcing myself to eat it because I'm very, very satiated um, even after just one meal. So, so I'm mm-hmm. trying to find that balance of getting enough to replenish, you know, after a long workout and, and not overstuffing myself because I don't feel like eating. <laughs> Are you, are you working out in a, in, on a treadmill then again? Is that what, I mean, cause I was seeing in Utah, are you getting outside or what, what are you currently working out right now? Yeah. So I strength train three days a week, right when I wake up. Um, and then I eat like a couple of eggs and then an hour later I'll go for about an hour and a half to two hour run outside, just bundle up. And then and when how, I get back. And how is your, how do you feel your performance is basically on a, on a, on a basically an all meat month right now? How's that been going? Um, it's been fluctuating. Um, I think I might, I don't know if there's, I haven't really seen any of the, the data on if you go through like a keto flu type thing with the carnivore diet, but you know, some days I feel super tired, but for the most part, I feel pretty energetic. Like you wouldn't be able to tell that I haven't been eating carbs. Um, yeah. I mean, there, there definitely can be, and often is an adaptation period. And I think in my experience as an athlete, I, it took me a couple months, quite honestly, to, to notice you know, in, in my sport, which is more strength and, and power, power related, there's a little bit of endurance component of it, but it's all the high end glycolytic, you know, max, you know, max effort type stuff, which is obviously different than where you're, where you're focusing, which is more could do that. I know Zach talked about doing a 24 hour run as a computer, purely as a carnivore, as a strategy, just because of the, you know, the relative VO2 max output, which is a lot lower than you'd sustain in say even a marathon or something like that. So Zach said you Zach did do that or you were talking about no that? I, I haven't yet it's uh it's something I'm curious about I'm curious about so what we have right now from what I've seen anyway in terms of actual like studies on endurance performance with a strict ketogenic diet is like basically you know most of it points to that like it's going to be a detriment to your top end performance so like if we're getting into like some of these endurance events that are you know more like the marathon or 50k or 100k it stands to reason that in a lot of cases you're probably taking a tool off the table by eliminating carbs altogether um from what we've seen in the lab anyway or i guess some of this stuff is in the field but you know studies that they've done on that stuff but what we've also learned with that is that, you know, if you can keep your relative energy output a little bit lower than some of those events, then it, it on paper anyway, I think Trent Stellingworth has said, like, when you start getting up into the events that are like past 10 hours, it starts to look like it's a, the performance deficit you'd maybe experience at something that's like uh, a little higher end aerobic uh, starts to level out and then on paper, at least it would be not a performance deficit. So then, I mean, 10 hours is you're just getting warmed up at 10 hours. <laughs> I would it's imagine like station. Yeah. Yeah. That's the first day station. So yeah, you might, you might not be able to eat until then, but, uh, um, yeah. So just thinking about like a 24 hour event, you know, the, my percentage of VO2 max or percentage of max heart rate is going to be very low relative to even what I would do for one of these fast hundred milers. And, and then for you, it's even more so because you're looking at, you know, multiple days, you're, you're probably more worried about just smaller things that kind of add up, I would guess, rather than like, Oh, if I don't have that carbohydrate right now, I'm going to run 15 seconds per mile slower from, 11 a.m. till noon. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> you're probably thinking, well, if I can avoid, 
uh, stopping and, you know, sitting down for 15 minutes and I can keep moving even at a very slow pace, that's what's going to get me to the finish line quicker or break a course record on a, on an event like that. So I think like that's where the, the door opens up for more of a strict keto approach or, you know, a car, a carnivorous approach, which is almost by default strict keto, I guess. Uh, uh, yeah. So what are your thoughts on that? Do you think like, cause I mean, you've done other things too. It's not like you just started doing 200 milers. You've done 50 Ks, 50 miles, hundred miles and things like that. Are you noticing like that it's easier to be strict keto or carnivore with some of these longer efforts than it would be if you were going to go say, do like a 50 miler? Absolutely. Um, you know, we, we joke about the, the 10 hour in between aid stations, but you know, for these 200 mile races, you're going six hours at a time sometimes without seeing an aid station. So, you know, for some people that's two marathons, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, it's a very, very long time. And so I I have noticed, um, you know, we'll say Moab, for example, there was a, a very famous individual that that ran that race with us, Mr. David Goggins. (laughs) And, um, there was a point where he and I were just alternating between first and second for a few hours. And, um, you know, this aid station was 25 miles apart and we were about 12 miles out and he came up to me and was asking if I had any kind of calories that he could borrow um, because he, he didn't pack enough for that long of a section. And, and I only had one, one gel left with me at that point and, and I had no problem giving it to him just because I felt confident with my sustained energy um, through being fat adapted. And so I definitely think that <clears throat> that doing keto and carnivore gives um, the very, very long endurance athlete an edge that a lot of people don't um, have. Um, and, I, and I definitely notice it more with these 200s than I would at like a 50K or a 100K. All right, folks, this episode of Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a meat delivery company that brings you high quality beef chicken, pork, salmon, and scallops. What does this mean? All products are natural and humanely raised or sustainably wild caught, as is the case with their salmon and scallops. If you are concerned with how the animals you eat were raised, rest assured, ButcherBox partners with farmers who are inspired by Dr. Temple Grandin, a member of the Humane Farm Animal Care Program's scientific committee. Their beef is 100% grass-fed and grass-finished, The chicken is organic and the pork is heritage breed with no added sugar. So head over to butcherbox.com and place an order today. And don't forget to enter promo code HPO for a discount. Thank you for supporting one of our longstanding sponsors. Now back to the show. (laughs) Hey, Zach, did you see uh, there was a recently a study came out that I... Uh, posted uh, and it talks about the protein requirements are more if you're following a keto or low carb eating pattern saying endurance athletes seeking to maximize their training benefits should eat at least 1.92 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight per day so basically you're in this slightly more than one gram per pound which is what you and I have talked about for a long time I know Zach you and I have said well maybe in the setting of low carb, maybe the protein is a difference, and that's why we see these athletes doing better potentially on a carnivorous diet, which is still potentially ketogenic, but yet higher in protein potentially. And so uh, that is interesting to see this sort of thing being shown in the literature now and, and seeing some of our, you know, our, our own personal uh, anecdotal experiences as athletes bearing out. It just makes, it just makes sense to me from an evolutionary perspective, if, if we say we were on a ketogenic diet, well, the only way we'd have gotten there would be by eating, you know, focusing eating on animals because there wasn't a lot, there wasn't, you know, Quest bars and, and uh, <laughs> you know, MCT oil floating around back then. So we, we would have very little chance to do that. So have you, have, did you see that, Zach, or, or any comments on the I, protein? I, I didn't see that article, but I do think that probably would make sense. And I think like, I think someone, I think too, just like, the role of using like uh, the demand driven use of protein for gluconeogenesis would have some effects for, for athletes like myself, or certainly for Mike, uh, where you're, you're moving at a, maybe a slow enough pace to actually like leverage that a little more than say your typical endurance athlete who may just be fighting this battle of their hourly output is gonna 
far exceed what they could possibly eat in the in a given moment. So then you're looking at like, well, how do I keep my fuel tanks at a manageable enough spot to keep tapping into them? And on the body fat one's not a problem, obviously. It's the, the muscle glycogen one that most endurance athletes are worried about. And uh, you know, for for you though, Mike, you might see like that the the relatively low intensity and then the also the opportunity to maybe eat more per hour than you'd be able to if you're trying to run say like a marathon uh, or something like that would be interesting but uh so Sean you were saying the the article was recommending about a a gram per per pound for endurance athletes yeah that was and that was i guess mostly around, around recovery just because you oh, okay. know it's because you as you know we we see a high turnover in muscle uh, and, and requirements for muscle protein synthesis after uh, you know one of these long endurance events, and so I think that's where that potentially is coming from. But it, I think it has interesting uh, you know ramifications for what we're talking about with regard to what's a, what's a, what's a, what's the best low carb approach. And I would say meat heavy, if not carnivore, is probably the way to go. I wonder, Mike, as you said, you'd broken your back, and obviously I don't know if you still have sequelae if you have a little bit of pain associated with that and if so have you noticed any benefit from switching to all meat in regards to any of those types of symptoms or or or, or swelling or generalized pain or anything like that not in my back no um i was fortunate enough to have most of my back pain go a couple years after i broke my back so but but you do i comparing the two years again um the year that i broke keto and carnivore and had like a lot of breaded crap and food that was high with inflammation i i noticed that my legs were swollen for for quite a bit between those races where this year i didn't experience any kind of swelling so from an inflammation standpoint i've I've noticed um, some high benefits from going heavier meat and i I know this isn't a specific question you just asked but the the weird thing that i've noticed and maybe you have some insight to this but you know, I'm not a good sleeper. I wake up multiple times at night and, and I just can't sleep that well. But whenever I go heavy carnivore, I sleep so much better, like the best I've ever slept in my entire life. So I do notice some benefits such as that when I go heavy meat. Yeah, I mean, that, that is more often not what, what most people report. One of the things they curiously report is you know, they, they find that their sleep latency or the time it takes them to fall asleep is very quick. Uh, the quality of sleep is very high, but sometimes the volume actually decreases a little bit. That's been my experience. I mean, I sleep, whereas before it would take me seven to eight hours to feel like I, I got enough rest. Now I feel like it's six, six and a half hours. I, I spring up out of bed. I, I, I can't remember the last time I've used an alarm clock other than traveling when I'm in a different time zone. But at home, I mean, I wake up at five, you know, before the sun comes up, wide awake, ready to go, and I feel great. And it's it's... Uh, one of those things, and you know, one of the things when we look at what are we doing when we're sleeping, when we're repairing tissues, uh, you know, with meat, you probably have a better quality source of materials to repair with. So maybe that process doesn't require as much time. Also, as, as Zach may point out during things like the faster study, we saw that oxidative stress, stress is much higher and, and probably some of the damage associated with that with athletic competition goes up, you know, uh, and so maybe you have less, maybe you got one, you've got less oxidative damage and damage to deal with. And two, you have better building blocks. And so the sleep quality and time is, is, is a little bit different. But yeah, it is one of the more common things that people say that their sleep goes up. Although some people struggle with the transition initially, but that's, that's pretty common. I don't know, Jack, you want to comment on that? Yeah, I was just curious if there was something in like meat or animal products that would or like a specific nutrient that we've tied to associating with like, cause I know like if you want to, you know, some people, if they're like, they have struggle falling asleep early, they'll, they'll take some sort of supplement, like say like melatonin or something like that. Is there something in, in meat or in things that are high in meat, I guess that would help false help someone fall asleep. There is What's some, there? you know, there's some research suggesting things like zinc, magnesium, and then mm. tryptophan. associated with sleep improvements and so those things are all found pretty abundantly in meat so those those are Mm -hmm. uh yeah one reason that it may be yeah that's interesting and i know mike like i noticed i had the same basically the same situation i've had other people tell me that too and it's it's one of those things where i i don't know like what the real cause is a lot of the time uh 
as to why like someone would maybe find their sleep quality improves on like a high fat, low carb diet or like the swelling, in the legs is another one that's kind of hard to tease out. But, uh, you know, cause some people all have say this, have to say the opposite. They'll say, oh, I switched to a keto diet and, and I started sleeping terribly and it's like, well, you know, <laughs> then, then maybe don't do it or, or, or don't do it for two weeks and then stop. <laughs> but, uh, it's, uh, I have heard that same that same kind of message come across, and that was certainly my experience too. Where it was one of the reasons why I even approached it in the first place was sleep quality was something I had historically always had good luck with, and then it started not being the case any longer. And the swelling after races and after big workouts and things like that. Or the other thing that was always pretty common too is if I fly go go on a flight, you know, I was even if I didn't do a big workout around it you'd have a lot of like residual swelling for about a day, day and a half after getting off of an airplane, especially if it was like a transcontinental flight or an international flight. And now I don't really have that anymore, maybe a little bit, or if I do like a big workout right before the flight, maybe a little bit, but um, I don't notice that either. So there's something happening where it's like either flushing out some of that, that for whatever reason, or maybe we're, I'm removing something that I was eating in, in excess with the higher carb approach that is allowing for that. But um, kind of an interesting, I think, follow-up question for you, because we kind of looked into when you were talking about the, um, was it Moab, I think, when you were with, with Goggins and you gave him yeah. the gel. Do you think like, or are you curious enough to like try one of these on like a carnivore diet and stick to the plan during the event? Or do you think it's the, the move is to kind of do something kind of still closer to what I tend to do on my races, which is, uh, you know, bring back carb sources for the event itself. Um, I'm curious. Well, my biggest worry is, that, and you and I kind of talked about this last month. My biggest worry is doing a strict carnivore diet full time and going to a race and then introducing carbs and just completely wrecking my gut and mm-hmm. having to go to the bathroom multiple times, whatever it may be. So um, I, I, I do want to try though, doing a, a longer distance race, full carnivore. Yes. Um, I feel that specifically with my body type, you know, the issue that I was running into before I came to keto and carnivore is, you know, I'm a bigger runner. I, I weigh 30 to 40 pounds more than a lot of other runners. So I was running into the cycle where I'd have to eat a lot of calories to maintain my energy levels. And so when I would eat those calories, I would get sick and start puking a lot and just have a terrible race. Whereas the next race I would lower my calorie intake because I didn't want to puke and I'd end up losing all my energy and just feeling like crap in a different way. So, you know, for my body type, I feel like there's quite a bit of value to being fat adapted. And I'm very, very curious to know if there's like another edge um, if you're going full carnivore and no carb for that kind of a race. Yeah, that's actually an interesting point because when you look at the intra event, like fueling science or research, one thing they point out is that it's not necessary when they look at just like, so they're, they're usually looking at it from an angle of like how much carbohydrate can you take in per hour before like, you know, you start running into issues. And a lot of that research they pinpoint like, you know, some pretty high numbers of like 60, sometimes 90 grams of carbohydrate per hour. But what they are careful to say is that that runs consistent from like, you know, runner to runner, regardless of size. So like, for example, if you're a 120 pound athlete and you can take in say 60 grams of carbohydrate per hour, and then you're talking about someone closer to your size then you still maybe only can get in 60 grams per hour, but you're burning way more calories per hour than that 120 pound runner is. So I would think someone in your situation would be, it would benefit even more from an approach like that, where you're not as reliant on your gut's capacity to be able to tolerate, or if you can limit the, what your gut has to tolerate, that's, that's a, good, uh, a good plus for you, especially in these longer events. Yeah, I agree. So I want to try it, but I just got to find a race I don't care enough about right, yeah. in case it doesn't work out. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's that's always the case too. It's like you want it. There's there's so many things I want to try, but yeah, like I don't. I also don't want to necessarily show up for a race you've been preparing for for like four months and then have it go sideways and 
And it's a, it's a unique enough sport where like to go out and say, do a 12 hour run and test it on that is hard to, to do, if not impossible, because you're, you're likely not going to mimic the exact environment and intensity that you'd want to do on race day anyway, or you end up just essentially doing a time trial on your own. And then you got to recover from that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a new world record you could go for. Long there you go. Past it or yeah. <laughs> well, Zach, Zach is, because uh, this, this actually kind of cares, because I know Zach has recently, you know, talked about running across the United States, which is very similar to, you know, kind of more the pace you would, exp- I mean, I would imagine even slower than what you're doing for 200 mile. And that, that may have similar implications. And I know Zach has talked about leg swelling in the past when he was doing a more higher carb approach, he would have just, you know, your legs would swell up like balloons after a race. And now that you're doing a different dietary strategy, that has improved a lot. But what, how would you approach a, a run across the United States? I'm just wondering if Zach would have the same strategy. How would I approach it or how would Zach approach it? Well, both. I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a hard question. I've never thought about running across the United States. <laughs> um, You'd probably be well suited for it. <laughs> I'd probably do a lot of lettuce wrap burgers, maybe not lettuce wrap, but just patties, a lot of patties and bacon. And I, I, from my experience, I do very well with fruit so far. So I'd probably implement a little bit of fruit, but I would do a lot of hamburger for sure. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think like for the transcon stuff, that would be the best opportunity to try out some of the strict keto stuff. I think mainly just because, for one, I think it's more about just getting enough in. Like if you look at Pete Kostelnik's record, he was averaging like 15,000 calories a day or something like that. So like, I'm just trying to, I'm at, at this point, I'm trying to wrap my head around what it looks like to do. Cause I don't think I've ever eaten 15,000 calories in a day. <laughs> Maybe I have, but like, it's been, I mean, it's, it's rare if it has happened. So like to have to do that once, like if you told me, okay, eat 15,000 calories today, I could probably do it. But to have to do it over and over again for like seven weeks, that's the big thing, right? So I think like at that point, you're trying to get as much energy dense stuff as you can get. So like a lot of fats and things like that. I think like, I think bacon is, you know, bacon without throwing the grease away, <laughs> you get that grease <laughs> with the, with the bacon um, is, is probably something I would do a lot of, a lot of like, I think if, uh, um, if I'm doing like burger patties, I'm probably going to be getting like beef tallow or something and adding that to it, uh, to, to fatten it up. Or, you know, if I deviate from the animal sources, I'd probably get like a bunch of like the, 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 the primal kitchen, like mayos or something. You could just add like a ton of calories without a whole lot of volume. Cause that's going to be the, I, my guess is fiber is not your friend on something like that when you're trying to get in 15,000 calories a day or whatever ends up being. Uh, you know, I did talk to, uh, do you know um, Meredith Terranova, Mike? Mm-mm. So she's a dietitian and you know, she, down, in, down in Texas. And I was talking to her a bit over the holidays about this. And she's had the opportunity to kind of like observe from kind of afar some of these like longer efforts, like Appalachian Trail type things. Uh, like a you know bike rides across the country and things like that. She does some of these uh, like um, extreme Ironman events where it's like you know instead of just doing the Ironman, they're doing it like three times over or something like that. And uh, so she's kind of got a, a view into that world a little bit, that extreme of an extreme kind of an approach. And she was saying that she thinks that there's maybe something to staying like very low carb at least for the first half of the day. And then when like you kind of get near to the end of a day and those hours are getting long, introduce some carbohydrates just to kind of like maybe, you know, add a little bit of pop or just change a little bit of your, your, the way it maybe would just respond to your system may make you a little more alert or just introduce something different might even. Um, And she, so she was talking about maybe using kind of thinking of a strategy around that. So if I didn't go strict keto, that would be maybe how I would use carbohydrates. I'd probably save them for like the last third of any one of the days and then, uh, you know, restock up. But I think the real battle with something like that is inflammation, right? Like you wake up in the morning and you can't move. It's not going to be because your muscles are too sore. It's going to be because you're too inflamed is my guess. And then what happens I think is like, if you're doing something like a transcon, 
you can kind of bypass that by just forcing through it or, you know, doing, getting down the, what I would consider a bad path of like anti-steroidal anti-inflammatories or non-steroidal anti-inflammatories to try to sidestep that. But I think that ends badly for you if you keep hammering that, um, for a variety of reasons. So I think going super heavy on the carbs is probably a recipe for potential injury or having it like something force you off the, off the path at some point. But you know, those are my suspicions at this point anyway. I got some homework to do though. <laughs> you have people like Carl who pound the pizza and beer and still do well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's you know, the Appalachian trail is the most interesting one to me because I feel like that route specifically has had the most variety in nutritional approaches. Cause you have Scott jerk who obviously did it vegan. And then you have Carl Meltzer who kind of just did like the like beer, pizza, ice cream. He was just like calories, calories, calories. And then uh, who is the other guy that did it that was doing like, he was doing a lot of like eggs and bacon and things like that in the morning. Right after and, Carl, right? Yeah. And I think he might've been one of the guys that Meredith was talking about that kind of had that strategy of instead of going like hard on like, you know, like pancakes and carby things for breakfast, he was keeping it kind of energy dense, fat and protein in the morning. Uh, and then not in waiting until later in the day to start bringing back. And that helped, helped him kind of stay stay a little looser or maybe less less inflamed in the in the mornings when he had to go back out and do it again or get back up and you know color another 50 miles on the AT uh so that that's kind of an interesting one but yeah I'll 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 be curious to see like see what you have in store with some of the 200 mile stuff because it doesn't sound like you're ready to stop anytime soon and I think most people who hear about that stuff are like, that's something you do once and then you, you get away from it. But you seem to be in the business of finding them and maybe more. <laughs> I like them. <laughs> yeah, I think the guy that ran that, that, it was a Belgian dentist by the name of Karel Saab, who I guess has a record. And he was a, he was an eggs and bacon dude. But uh, mm -hmm. I was wondering, you know, um, for you guys that have tried, I know, I know a lot of people when they take all these gels and when they're on these endurance events, whether they're cycling, triathlon, you know, running, have a lot of GI problems. You know, they, mm -hmm. that's a, that's the biggest issue. So their GI. Are you finding that if you do like higher fat, does that is, how does that tolerate on the road on the run? Is that well tolerated, or have you guys played with that? Higher fat on the run. Yeah, like like taking some fat in, like whether it's animal fat or some other plant fat or something like that. High fat as a source of energy. You know, I know there's people who are supp supplementing keto ketone esters, but orally. How, how does a gut seem to tolerate like bacon or something like that if you're running? <laughs> For me, my gut tolerates bacon really well. Um, at, at the 200 mile races, I didn't do any gels. I did a lot of fruits, but then I did a lot of hamburger patties and bacon and, and I had no GI issues at any of these races. So, you know, for me, and it, but I, I don't know how that would do for Zach, a, a short, not a short, a fast hundred mile race, like a shorter timed, faster hundred mile race compared to a 200 mile race. But for me, it worked well. Yeah. You know, I haven't deviated too far from liquid calories in some of the, the flat hundred milers, but with some of the stuff that's a little longer than that, or like on us, just on a, on a train where it's going to limit how fast I'm going. I have done some more things like bacon and things more so during like as a kind of secondary fuel source, but, um, I haven't done it enough maybe to really tease out if it could potentially give me stomach issues if I had it in, in, in too much of a volume, but that, that's kind of a question I have for you though, Mike is like, when you do that, when you're doing the two hundreds and you're eating, are you like, what are you, what are you looking at for like quantity? Um, because if I eat the, the big limiter is like, if I eat too much, you almost get lethargic. So like, are you kind of biting that bullet more or less and then just kind of saying, okay, the next 20 minutes, I'm going to be doing more of a hike and let this kind of settle and then I'll kind of get back into some running. Or are you just trying to eat it in a small enough quantity that it doesn't really affect kind of that, that system a little bit as much? Small enough quantity. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I, 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 I'm very more on the eat as little as possible side of things. Um, you know, Ben light, when he did the two hundreds, I remember he set up one aid station or throughout the whole race, he had like something like 12 hamburgers and two pizzas or something like that. And, <laughs> and I bet you for me, I had 
maybe three hamburgers and 10 pieces of bacon and the rest was just liquid based. So I'm more on the lower side. Is, is Ben, Ben, I I saw Ben actually at Javelina hundred this year. I think that was, yeah, I think it was at Javelina and he had, I think he was like three or four weeks into a keto diet and he had said that he was, uh, he could, he was feeling it a bit, but he felt like it was, it was kind of turning a corner a little bit. Have you been talking to him much recently or? Yeah, he's in phase two right now and he's loving it. Okay, cool. Good. Yeah. It's always interesting to hear. Cause like, you know, for my, my, my start, I was like four weeks of pretty smooth sailing. I would say relative to some of the stories I've heard. Um, but it was like, also a time of year where I was not structured training. So if I felt really miserable, I would just run two minutes per mile slower and maybe not as long and say, okay, whatever. And then like the next day I'd maybe feel perfectly fine. So, um, the thing that kind of kept me motivated to do it was like what we talked about earlier was I was started to sleep better almost right away. And my energy levels outside of activity were pretty steady. So like just going to work and I was teaching at the times so going to work and teaching was like, Oh, this is cool. I don't feel like I should need a nap at, you know, two or three in the afternoon anymore. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so talking to Ben, I was like, oh yeah, like you're, you're, I think he was more or less still kind of training to a degree, but he's also doing like a lot of stuff you are. And he's another right. guy who's done the triple crown, does these long 200 milers. So I think like, I love to see guys like you play around with this stuff. Cause I think that's like, I don't want to say a no brainer, but I think it's certainly like something that should be a, uh, be seen as like one of the go-to approaches from a nutritional standpoint for events of that distance and length. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So do you do any, you said you do some strength training and stuff. Do you do any other type of cross training? Cause I would imagine like with just time on feet being one of the things that you're worried about, you have a little more opportunity and living in a state where you have all four seasons. Are you doing skiing? Are you getting on bikes or anything like that? Um, I don't bike, um, in the summer, I'm just doing running the whole time, but right now in the winter, I do backcountry skiing. Um, I have a, a touring setup. So, so yeah, I do strength training, cross country skiing, backcountry skiing, running. Um, that's about it. Cool. So Mike, do you have another big, uh, you have an event? What's your, what, do you have things scheduled this year? You're going to do the same triple crown deal or, or you said something in June. Is that, is that a 200 deal? No, I'm, I'm going for the bad water. Um, I don't know if you've heard of that one. It's I like, have, that's how, that's how far is that one? It's like 140 or something or what is that? Yeah. 135. 135. Okay. I'm, so I'm that, surprised. that's going to be, I know that cause I'm not an endurance <laughs> guy, but I have heard enough about that. So. I was going to say, anybody that relatively knows of ultra running knows of Badwater because of Goggins. <laughs> yeah, Badwater in Western States always pop yeah. up. <laughs> Leadville sometimes too. Awesome. I'm curious to know how a heavy meat diet's going to do for that kind of race with the heat though. Um, well, that's, that's, actually, that's actually a good point because I was going to ask you about that because um, I think Badwater, when you get these really hot environments, sometimes what ends up happening from a competitive standpoint is you just can't eat as much of anything. So... I would think you maybe get as fat adapted as you can almost going into something like that and just plan on eating the lower end of average of what you've normally done or even lower in some cases when it's the heat of the day. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it could be interesting because I know historically bad water was set up in a way where you go through the heat, you go through the heat of the day and the thick of the race. Whereas now due to permitting issues, they have to, had to, they had to kind of manipulate the start a bit. So now someone as fast as you might, you might take care of the hottest portion of the course when it's still nighttime, a little cooler. I mean, (laughs) relatively though, have you looked at much of the forecasts throughout the course of the race? A little bit, but you know, it's a, it's a essentially a lottery. So I'm just going to wait till I get accepted or not before I really start to look at it. Sure. Yeah. Cause it's probably like, cause I mean, here in, here in Phoenix, like, you know, it's nice to say, oh, it cools off at night, but cooling off is all relative. It might still be 85 <laughs> degrees. <laughs> I'm pretty sure um, my buddy who did it last year said it was 100 degrees at night. Okay, yeah. So, <laughs> so. <laughs> so digesting anything, at least you don't have direct sunlight, I guess. But uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would think like maybe you'd want to just get really fat adapted for that and then uh, 
try to run consistent. That might be the feel... experiment with carnivore fully. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me see if, if, if you do let me know. I'll be yeah. interested obviously. So yeah, um, I will. <laughs> so uh, Mike, where can people find out about you, follow you, you know, you know, sort of ask you questions and stuff like that if they want to. Um, just Michael John McKnight on Facebook. And then my Instagram is dirty Mike underscore 89. I don't need to get into that, 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 that name, but yeah. All right, Zach. Well, good deal. That's another interesting, interesting topic. And so I, I just got a phone notification about our other podcast. So, Oh, okay. We must be coming up soon on it. Well, awesome. yep. a little bit. Yeah. So, Mike, yeah. we'll, we'll link your Facebook and Instagram stuff to the show notes. So folks can head over and follow Mike. Definitely give him a follow on Instagram. See what he's up to uh, follow along as he runs while we sleep multiple times before he finishes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Take care. Okay. Thanks guys. Hey folks, human performance outliers podcast is growing and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.